It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, listening friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? June 11, 2021. A lobster diver was entirely swallowed by a humpback whale off the coast of Massachusetts, but he made it out alive with only minor injuries. Michael Packard, 56, told WBZ-TV he was 45 feet down in the water off Provincetown when all of a sudden I felt this huge shove and the next thing I knew it was completely black. He initially thought that it was a shark, but realized he didn't feel any teeth or pain. I could sense I was moving, and I could feel the whale squeezing me with the muscles in his mouth. I was completely inside, and it was completely black, he added. I thought to myself, I'm done. I'm dead. Packard says he thinks that he was in the whale's mouth for about 30 seconds, but he was able to continue breathing because he still had his scuba tank on. In an effort to save himself, Packard said he began rocking within the whale's mouth before the animal surfaced and ejected him. Packard's mate, Josiah Mayo, saw the creature burst from the surface and initially he thought it was a great white shark also. He plucked him from the water and then ferried the dazed diver to a local hospital. Humpback whales, which can grow to 40 tons, are toothless filter feeders who corral schools of fish or shrimp before taking massive gulps. Their throats are actually too narrow to swallow a human. Experts believe Packard was accidentally enclosed while swimming too close to the whale's dinner. Fortunately, Packard experienced no serious injury. But did you know the Bible talks about a man who survived three days and three nights in a whale? Stay with us, friends. We're going to learn more on this edition of Bible Answers Live. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, accurate and practical answers to your Bible questions. Welcome, listening friends, to Bible Answers Live, and we're so thankful that you've tuned in. If you've got a Bible question, we'd like to invite you to give us a call. Uh, The phone number is 800-GOD-SAYS. That's 800-463-7297. And uh, we're also streaming this program on Facebook. You can watch what's happening here in the studio on the Doug Batchelor Facebook page, the Amazing Facts Facebook page, and the Amazing Facts YouTube channel. And you can uh, text your friends, tell them to call in with their Bible questions. We don't have all the answers, but we'll do our best to search the Word together and to find the truth. 800-GOD-SAYS, 800-463-7297. I am Doug Batchelor. My name is John Ross. Good evening, friends, and Pastor Doug. It's always a joy to be able to study the Bible together. Before we get there, you spoke about a remarkable story of somebody that was swallowed by a whale and yet survived. This obviously is not the first time that we've heard stories about people being swallowed by a whale. Of course, you have the Bible story of Jonah, but you also have in more recent times, back in the 1600s, 1700s, 
there have been stories of fishermen that were swallowed by, or whalers that were swallowed by a whale, and yet they survived, even been swallowed down into the to the whale's belly, yes. and they, they killed the whale and pulled the guy out. So it's not uncommon. I guess it's not a, a rare thing uh, to be engulfed by a whale. Those was incredible. Yeah, well, the baleen whales, like the, the humpback and the blue whale, uh, they can't. But then you have the sperm whales. They eat giant squid. They can uh, definitely swallow a person whole. And um, that was the story I think you referred to of a guy named James Bartley, who was actually swallowed by a whale, recovered about 20 hours later, still alive. And, uh, but, you know, the Bible tells us the story of Jonah. You've all heard it, friends. And people say, well, it's just an allegorical story, and it isn't really true. It was just a metaphor, a fable to teach a lesson. But if you read in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus talking about the story of Jonah, he says that it is very definitely real. He says, for as Jonah was in the belly, at, by the way, this is Matthew 12, and you can read in verse um, 39, he said, it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's also referenced in Luke 11, and uh, uh, of course, the story of Jonah. Mm -hmm. So it is a true story. And friends, the wonderful thing about the story of Jonah, Jesus said it is a sign. Real quick, story of Jonah. He's sleeping in a boat during a storm. Jesus was sleeping in a boat during a storm. And they wake him up, and Jesus was woke up. After they wake him up, the storm is calmed. Jesus calms the storm. They cast lots over Jonah. They had Jesus, they cast lots at Jesus' cross. And uh, it says that... Um, they turned, these Gentiles turned to the Lord because of the sacrifice of Jonah. And then it tells us, Jonah, after three days and three nights, he comes out alive. Jesus, from his betrayal to his resurrection, he suffered for the sins of the world three days and three nights. And then Christ said, Jonah is a sign to this generation. Jonah went to Nineveh, says it was a three-day journey, and then it says he preached in 40 days, it would be destroyed. But they repented. Jesus preached three years. Actually, it was a three and a half day journey for Jonah. Jesus preached three and a half years. And in 40 years, Jerusalem was destroyed. So he was a, a living sign to that generation. We've got a book that has that and a lot more. We'll send anybody for free and it'll strengthen your faith in the power of God. The book is called The Sign of Jonah, written by Pastor Doug, and we'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The number to call for that is 800-835-6747, and you want to ask for the book The Sign of Jonah. And we'll be happy to get that in the mail and send it to anyone who calls and asks, and you'll be blessed by reading that. Well, Pastor Doug, before we go to the phone lines, it's always good to start with a word of prayer, so let's do that. Mm -hmm. Dear Father, once again, we are grateful that we have this opportunity to open up your word and study together. And Father, we ask your blessing. Be with those who are listening, wherever they might be, whether they're traveling or maybe at home. Father, be with us here in the studio and guide us into a clearer understanding of what the Bible says. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Once again, if you have a Bible-related question, the phone line here at the studio is 800-463-7297. That's 800-463-7297. If you don't get in right away, you are on the queue, and we'll get to your call as soon as possible, so just stay on the line. We're going to go to our first caller this evening. We've got Anthony listening in New York. Anthony, welcome to Bible Answers Live. Hey, how are you? 
Good. How are you? Good. I'm doing fine. Best. Um, my question is based on Second Thessalonians chapter two. Um, uh, I guess we can start in verses nine through ten. I mean, there's a little bit of context there, but nine and ten is specifically uh, where my question is coming from. Well, let me go ahead and read that for everyone, Anthony, so that uh, those who are driving can can uh, get the scripture. It says, Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception amongst those who perish, because they did not receive a love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusions that they should believe a lie, that they all might be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So wh- what's your question? Is it about God sending delusion? Well, actually, you know, you're cutting. We're having problems, Anthony. Your phone is cutting off and on. You're jumping in and out. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Can you hear me better now? Yep, that's better. Okay, great. Sorry. Um, I know the Bible also says that if it were possible, even the very elect will be deceived by this strong, you know, by the deception of Satan. I guess I'm wondering, how do we prepare ourselves to be able to distinguish between, one one thing I will also say is that we'll know that the Holy Spirit will be poured out and that there will be miracles that people will be doing as well in the last days. So I'm just wondering, how do we distinguish rightly distinguish between the miracles that are as a result of the fruit of the Spirit versus the deception from Satan? Because, the, you know, we see it even going on into, you know, the world today. Uh, is there just a surefire way to know one versus the other? Well, I think there's a list of tests that we apply to know how to discern between the two and the false. Christ said, for one thing, you'll know them by their fruits. Uh, Moses tells us when you're telling a true from a false prophet, that um, if they prophesy and their prophecy doesn't come true, then they're clearly not a true prophet. Uh, also, if their lives are not in harmony with the truth, you know, there's a lot of wicked people and they say that they're prophets. Um, and it should be in accordance with the word of God. You know, their other teachings would then line up with the word of God. Sometimes people say they've got a prophecy and the prophecy may even come true, but they're getting it through astrology or through some kind of mysticism and well, right away, you know that it's not a prophecy of God. So um, there's a number of tests. Now, I think we have a lesson that we can send. We do. That has all these tests that you apply to a true and a false prophet. And if you'd like to receive that study guide, one of the Amazing Facts study guides, the number to call is 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the study guide. It's called, Does God Inspire Psychics and Astrologers? And we'll send that out to anyone who calls and asks. Again, that's 800 835 Six seven four seven, and as for the study guide talking about prophecy, does God uh, inspire psychics and astrologers? And Pastor Doug, as you mentioned, you've got uh, five key criteria, and that's listed in the study guide that'll help uh, guide people mm-hmm. to know the truth from error. Thank you for your call, Anthony. We got a call coming in from uh, Emmanuel from Ghana, Africa. Emmanuel, welcome to the program. Uh, good morning, Pastor Doug and Pastor Ross. Hello. Hi. Hello. Yeah. Lisa, my, my question this morning is um, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Um, uh, God told Adam that uh, the day they eat the fruit of uh, good and evil, they shall surely die. But uh, after eating, they didn't die at the spot. So I'm asking, why didn't they die at the spot? 
after eating the food, but I don't live to 930 years. Yeah. Well, first of all, they did die. They did begin to die spiritually. And in Hebrew, when it says, you shall surely die, the way that translates is, in dying, you will die. In other words, the, they would begin a death process as soon as they sinned. And that's that happened, you know, right away. You notice that their glorious robes, the light went out that covered them and they saw their nakedness. And um, uh, they, they began to feel shame and blame. And, uh, the, you know, the dying process happened. Thorns and thistles came out on all of creation began to suffer. The other thing to keep in mind is that with God, it says a day was, is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. And that's Psalm 84. It's also Second Peter chapter 3. And no man lived more than 969 years. That was Methuselah, meaning they all died in that millennial day. God lives forever. So when he said, in the day that you eat thereof, you'll die. Well, they did die within that first millennial day. But they did begin dying that very moment they sinned. Uh, the process began. And also the moment they sinned, a substitute that very day, a substitute was found to take their place mm -hmm. uh, where the lamb was sacrificed and they were given the coats of skin. Had that sacrifice not been available right away, they probably wouldn't have lived very long, at least not the 900 years. Yeah, that's right. The, the uh, Lord covered them mm -hmm. with skins. Something had to die. Gave them probationary time. Thanks for calling, Manuel. We've got Charles listening from Florida. Charles, welcome to the program. Hey, Pastor Doug, Pastor Ross, how are you all tonight? Doing well. My question is this. Right now, we're living in the end times. We're very close to Jesus' second coming. My question is this, how do I spread the gospel if I don't know the Bible still all that well? Well, you know, there's varying degrees of understanding. Uh, and when we start out, we are babes in the word. We are saved babes. You can have very simple faith. You know, Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he had, you know, been a, a pagan jailer he probably there's a lot he didn't know paul stayed in his house he dressed his wounds he taught him uh, and then there's growth that happens after that so when a person can understand and embrace by faith the simplicity of the gospel the holy spirit helps them to grasp that they can do that even as babies and then grow in their understanding all different levels you know pastor i'm reminded of this another story where Jesus healed the demoniac and he wanted to follow Jesus. But Jesus said, go back to your towns and your family and your friends and tell them what I've done for you. So one might not have a full understanding of all of the various prophecies of the Bible, but you can share what Jesus has done for you. In Revelation chapter 12, it talks about those who overcame by the word of their testimony. So if the Lord has blessed us, if we have a testimony, we have an experience, that's where we can start. We can begin by sharing that testimony. Amen. Thanks for your call, Charles. We've got Paul listening in uh, Arkansas. Paul, welcome to the program. Hey, pastors, can you hear me? We do. Okay, wonderful. Um, two questions, same context. Um, I called another Q&A ministry out of Texas. I'm a trucker. And uh, I asked, uh, I understand to be Masih, the judgment, and there were rewards. Uh, then he corrected me, said it wasn't rewards, it's reward. And then my second question was, uh, if uh, what would our reward or rewards be that's the difference from uh, maybe uh, stronger believers? And I was using it as an example, uh, Billy Graham and myself. Well, he went into the parable of the vineyard owner 
and how he hired them at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. told me Jesus is an equal opportunist. I thought that was a parable to tell people that no matter how late it is, uh, you can always receive salvation. So I never got an answer. Is it reward or rewards? Because I always hear other uh, uh, preachers saying rewards. And uh, is there a difference of our reward or rewards uh, for someone who, like Billy Graham, 50, 60 years and myself 10 years? Yeah, good question. Um, You know, some of this might, and I don't want to, you know, judge the other uh, commentator, but you know, technically, we're, salvation is the broad reward that the redeemed receive. Everybody receives salvation. And in the parable of the vineyard workers, Christ is really telling the Jews, do not be jealous that here you've served me for 2,000 years as a nation, and now I'm giving salvation to the Gentiles right out of the gate. Um, so that parable was really for them. But Christ is clear that there are varying degrees of reward because there are also varying degrees of punishment. I mean, Jesus says, great will be your reward in heaven to one group. And uh, he talks about in the judgment, he says, those who had two talents that turned it into four talents, uh, they're, they're going to get uh, rewarded. Those who took the five and turned it into 10, they're going to get a greater reward. He says, I'll put you over 10 cities. So there's several parables where Jesus says there's varying degrees of rewards. He also said, the person who did not know his master's will and disobeyed is beaten with few stripes, but he who knew his master's will and still disobeyed is beaten with many stripes. So both in punishment and in uh, prosperity or blessing, it seems there are varying degrees of rewards. And if you look at the verse in Revelation 20 to 12, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Now we know that we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith, and yet we are rewarded by works. So just as each person has different works, there are different rewards. For example, you might have somebody who gives their life as a testimony of their faith. They martyred for their faith in Jesus. Their reward in heaven might be a little different than someone who lives a fairly good life, but maybe has never really been involved in bringing somebody else to Christ, at least not sacrificing to that same extent. So there are varying rewards based upon uh, our works, and yet our salvation is based upon our faith. And even on earth, uh, Jesus, every now and then, he'd look at somebody like the centurion or this uh, uh, Syrophoenician woman, he'd say, how great your faith mm-hmm. is. So he, he recognized varying degrees of faith, even during his earthly ministry. Mm-hmm. Does that help, Paul? You know, it does, and thank you, because uh, uh, that answer was not even close to uh, what I, I got. And because Billy Graham did have a butler, and I didn't. When we get to heaven, I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. I just want to be there. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And you know what? Also, the parable, you're absolutely right. The greatest reward is what Jesus did on the cross so we can receive salvation. Everything after that, kibbles and That's right. That's just the gravy. And, of course, you also read in the Bible that uh, the redeemed in heaven take their crowns from their heads and they lay it at the feet of Jesus and they say, you are worthy to receive praise. So there's going to be no selfish ambition in heaven for sure. Thank you. Uh, next caller that we have is Patty, uh, or Patty calling from Georgia. Patty, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for taking my question. Um, since sin is the transgression of the law, and it's important to know what the law is, is there anywhere else to 
look for the law besides the Ten Commandments. And what got me thinking about this is James uh, chapter 2, verses, I guess, 8 through 10. It mentions um, loving your neighbor as yourself and, and calling that the law and, you know, saying you shouldn't break the law. And I my understanding of um, loving your neighbor as yourself doesn't, I don't think that's in the Ten Commandments, so I'm wanting to be sure <laughs> that I have I know where to look for all the laws. Yeah, good question. Well, first of all, the law is divided in a few different ways. The Ten Commandments are an expression of the supreme law of love. The first four commandments deal with our love for God. And, you know, Jesus said love. All the law is summed up in love the Lord with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. The last six commandments are talking about the horizontal love relationship between us and our neighbor. You know, don't steal from your neighbor, don't kill, don't take their spouse, don't covet their goods, so forth. So uh, the Ten Commandments are really a great summary, but you find the principles of the law, Paul said, you know, all the law is summed up in this, to love. And maybe you were looking something up. Were you going to read that? Yeah, I was just going to add actually to that, um, the very passage in James chapter 2, verse 8, uh, where James says, to fulfill the royal law, you need to love your neighbors yourself. And then just three verses down, he says, he gives an example, and he says, for he who said, I do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, and yet you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So it's quite clear in James's mind that when he says you shall love your neighbor yourself, he's referring to the principle that sustains the Ten Commandments. Somebody came to Jesus one day and said, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, well, there's actually two. The first is to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then the second is to love your neighbor yourself. Upon these two commandments, Jesus said, hangs all the law and the prophets. So the first four of the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship with God. And the last six have to do with our relationship with our fellow man. So in one way, the Ten Commandments defines what love is. It tells us how do we love God? How do we love our fellow man? That's right. Well, I was thinking about murder. If you put it on a continuum, love would be at one end and murder would be at the other. Exactly. I mean, I've thought about this before. Okay, well, I think I I don't think I need to be too worried that I don't that I need to look somewhere else besides the 10 commandments. Just keep looking deeper. <laughs> yeah, well, you you do have the 10 commandments and that's of course the moral law. You do have what they call civil law. And uh there were laws that said, you know, if your neighbor's donkey wanders off, bring it back. That's, of course, a law of love. There are health laws in the Bible. Uh, and, you know, most of them are common sense about sanitation and not to eat uh, scavengers and things like that. But um, so, I, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's just the Ten Commandments. God does have laws that get a little more specific. We have a lesson, I think, that talks about this. We'll send you for free. It's called Written in Stone, and it talks about the Ten Commandments, and we'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The number is 800-835-6747. And again, you can ask for the study guide. It's called Written in Stone, and we'll be happy to send it out to anyone who calls and asks. We've got Oscar listening from New York. Oscar, welcome to the program. Oh, yes, sir. Hey. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I would like to know what does the word righteousness mean? 2 Corinthians 5.21? Yeah. It says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I, what does righteousness mean? Um, I don't understand. Okay, good. Now, when it talks about he, God, the Father, made him, 
Jesus, capital H, who knew no sin, Christ was pure, to be sin, Christ took all the, all the sin of the world in himself for us, that we, through faith in him, might become the righteousness of God in him. When we have faith in Christ, we then are given credit for the righteousness of Christ, and that's called justification. And then uh, out of gratitude for that, we also then from then on want to live holy lives, and that's called sanctification. But just by coming to Christ in faith, he'll wash away all of our sins because Christ who knew no sin became sin for us that the righteousness of God might be in us. And if you want to look at just the word righteousness, it simply means right doing. So, you know, the law requires right doing or obedience to the Ten Commandments. We've all fallen short of that. We're all guilty of sin. Jesus came and he perfectly kept the law. He did right. He did righteousness. And then, as Pastor Doug mentioned, that great transaction where we give Jesus our sins by faith and he credits his right doing or his righteousness to our account so that we stand before God just as if we'd never sinned. And the technical term there is justification. So righteousness simply means right doing. And Paul is talking to the, to the believers um, while he's talking to the Jews in particular, and he says, you're trying to obtain a righteousness based on your own works, and you're neglecting the righteousness that God has already provided in Jesus. And his appeal to the Jews, accept Christ's righteousness. That's the righteousness that saves. Amen. Think we can squeeze in one quick question before our break? Yeah, let's see. We've got uh, Phil listening in New York. Phil, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. Um, was Solomon's temple, the first Jewish temple, a real place? Did it actually exist? And the reason I ask is because apparently, even to this point in time, there is no physical, no archaeological evidence of its very existence. Okay, hey, thank you very much. Was the Temple of Solomon a literal temple? Well, first of all, if you believe the historic accuracy of the Bible, you can read there in 1 Kings great detail about the Temple of Solomon. David basically had raised the money for it. He prepared a lot of stones and gold and silver. It gives the dimensions and the design as a very real place as it was being built, and that's both in 1 uh, Kings and is it uh, First Chronicles as well, I believe. And um, Pastor Ross and I, we were in Israel together a couple of years ago, and they took us on a private tour down below the stones that were built by Herod the Great. And they take you to the foundation stones that actually date back to the time of Solomon. So I know there are some, there are some people in Israel that say, well, we dispute that those stones were there from Herod or from Solomon. They say it was built later. But then there's a lot of archaeologists that say, no, these 50-ton stones, are uh, they go back to the time of Solomon. So uh, I think there's abundant evidence. I think they even said they found the quarry because Solomon, it says they quarried the stones and then they drug them to the, um, the building site all pre-cut. There's a lot of detail about construction for us to think that's a total fabrication. So I think there is also tangible evidence in the quarry. Hey, thank you very much, Phil. appreciate your question. Hope that helps a little bit. Probably not going to have time. Oh, there's the music. We're just, we're not going away. We're going to have more Bible questions. The best is yet to come. So tell your friends to tune in and with their Bible questions, we'll do our best in just a few minutes. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. The last words of Jesus should be the first priority for believers. 
He said, go and make disciples of all nations. And that's why we're so excited to let you know now that the Amazing Facts AFCO program is going to be available around the world through our online course. You'll be able to study this fantastic material on your computer, on your iPad, on your phone, on the go. The course is going to be based upon our best-selling Amazing Disciples book. This 175-page book has 13 presentations, but in the different segments, you're going to get the whole presentation from the actual teachers. You'll have weekly downloads jam-packed with witnessing resources. You can follow the 13-week structure or learn at your own pace. There's interactive lessons included with video presentations. And upon your course completion, you'll receive a certificate. Are you ready to become the sole winner God has called you to be? Enroll now. Visit AFCO.org today. The Bible tells us that salvation, of course, emanates from God. So we need to know something about God to rightly understand and embrace salvation. Yet in the church today, there's a great deal of confusion about the nature of God. The Bible says God is one God, but is He three persons? Is Jesus also eternal God? Because Jesus is the Son of God, does that mean there was a time when He did not exist or He was brought into existence? Is the Holy Spirit a person? Or is He just the force and the energy that God uses to communicate? You know, I thought this was so important, I really felt led of the Lord to write a book on the subject called Exploring the Trinity, One God or Three. In this book, we answer those very important questions. We talk about the history of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, as well as the history of the Holy Spirit in the church and how it has been much debated. This is something we really need to understand because Jesus said eternal life comes from knowing God. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Welcome, listening friends. If you've tuned in along the way, this is Bible Answers Live, and we do, as the title suggests, we do our best to answer your Bible questions. Now, Pastor Ross, he's got a little notebook in front of him so he sees there's callers waiting i have no idea who's calling or what the question is and so uh, i i'm hoping i get a notebook like that one of these days so i can see what's <laughs> coming in but we're not going to dilly dally we're going to get to the phones if you have a question here's the number it's 800 god says 800-463-7297 for your bible questions if you want to see what's happening in the studio that would be the amazing facts facebook page or the doug bachelor facebook page and you can watch as well as listen there. Pastor Doug, we just like to keep you on your toes. That's why we don't give you your own little notepad here. All right, next caller that we have is Carl, listening from Canada. Carl, welcome to the program. Uh, good evening, gentlemen. Thank you for your work for the King. Amen. A question. Uh, how's the, what's the best response to what I see as a rising, um, rising doctrine? within Christian circles uh, about Jesus only, that there's only Jesus, 
Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. What's the best response to this new idea? Yeah, I, that, that's sort of a type of modalism, basically saying God changes his, he can change his mode. There's one God and he can put on the Jesus face or the Father face or the Spirit face. Well, probably one of the best answers for that, Carl, is if you look at the baptism of Jesus, you've got Jesus, the Son, in the water at the very same moment that God the Father is speaking to him, unless Jesus is doing ventriloquism, and then the Holy Spirit is coming down as a separate entity upon him. And, you know, Jesus says, go baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so um, Christ all the time is there on earth. Sometimes Jesus speaks and then the Father thunders from heaven. He says, I've glorified your name and I will glorify it again. So there, over and over again, if you just read the Bible as it's written, without doing all these theological gymnastics, you can see that there are three distinct individuals. Christ talks about the Spirit as He. When He, the Spirit, has come, He will lead you into all truth. And I must leave that He may come. And uh, it's, it's really clear. We have that book on the Trinity that really, it, it will also uh, pull the rug out from under the oneness teaching. Now, I don't want to be unkind. I, I know I've got a lot of uh, friends I used to go to. I was telling Pastor Ross that I used to go to oneness church. And um, yeah, there's some dear Christian people but they are really hung up on the idea that it's only Jesus and that Jesus is the Father and he is the Son and he's the Holy Spirit. I don't think the Bible teaches that. We have a book. It's called The Trinity. Is it biblical? And we'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The number to call is 800-835-6747. That is the free offer number. Ask for the book on the Trinity. It's called The Trinity. Is it biblical? You know, Pastor Doug, there are many examples in the Bible, in the Gospels, where Jesus is actually praying and he spends the whole night in prayer and if he wasn't praying to a real being, if he wasn't praying to his father, who was he praying to? You know, it's it just, if you just read the way the Bible puts it, it's pretty clear. Take this cup from exactly. me. I mean, are you talking to himself? No, my will, thy will be done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Next one we have is Gregory listening from Alabama. Gregory, welcome to the program. Gregory, are you there? Might be muted, Gregory. Hello, Pastor Doug and Pastor. Hello, Pastor Doug and Pastor Ross. Thank you for answering my call. My question tonight is, how is Jesus and God both the same person? Okay, that's a good question. Similar to um, the question we had. In the Bible, when it talks about there is one God, keep in mind that when the Lord talks about being one, that God said a man gets married to his wife and they become one flesh. Well, there's still two people, but they're now united in their covenant um, the 12 apostles, Jesus prayed that they might be one. And Jesus is saying that he and the Father are one. And what he means by that is that they are perfectly united in their work of saving man. Now they've got different roles, just like you might have a father and mother that serve different roles in a family, but they're one, they're united in their family. And so um, uh, does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. All right. You would also enjoy the, the book that we just talked about, and uh, you can read that with your folks. How old are you, Gregory? Ten. Ten. Thanks so much. I'm glad you're thinking about these deep things of God. We'll send you that book on the Trinity. Yeah, and also, you know, Gregory, you might want to talk to your parents about the amazing adventure set of lessons. It's good for, for young people. It's good for people your age, 10 to 12, 8 to 12. Yep, I think you'd really enjoy it. If you haven't seen it yet, you can find out more. Talk to your parents about looking at that at the Amazing Facts website. Next caller that we have is Lisa, listening from uh, Oklahoma. Lisa, welcome to the program. 
Hello, can you hear me? We can. Okay. Hi, thank you for taking my question. Um, in Mark and Matthew, it talks about um, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And my understanding is that the flesh is bad, like bad, like who we are. And so my question is, how then can we strengthen the spirit to overcome that flesh? Because I, I struggle with so many of the different things that you're not supposed to do. Okay, well, you're first of all, don't be discouraged because that's sort of the, the uh, struggle everyone faces. Um, if you read in Romans, I, now I just preached on this last week, and if you go to my Facebook page, you can watch that sermon about the battle between the spirit and the flesh. I just preached a whole sermon specifically on your question. So I hope you'll, anyone out there, if you're wondering about the battle between the spirit and the flesh, you can just go to the Amazing Facts of the Doug Batchelor Facebook page, and we post and leave the sermons up there. We want anyone who wants to be able to access the word. But if you look in Romans chapter eight, it says, for there is now therefore, this is verse one, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now there's the key. Living a spirit-filled life through abiding in Christ. The law of the spirit-filled life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful men and on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul describes the battle that people face in Romans chapter seven. He says, you know, I, I knew what I'm supposed to do, but I do what I don't want to do. And what I want to do, I don't do. And there's this tug of war inside. And he sort of culminates in chapter seven by saying, you know, who will deliver me from this body of death where we're struggling? The, the whole body is not all evil. I mean, you know, it, it's normal to feel hunger and to satisfy that need. And if you're tired and you sleep, that's the flesh that's tired, but it's not a sin to sleep. It's not a sin to eat. And if you're married, sex is not a sin. And so these are fleshly desires, uh, but the flesh is much more than the physical aspect. The flesh is also talking about pride. Um, it can be attitudes and thoughts. So um, the whole key for all of this is to be born again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as you read the word, as you focus on Christ, he abides with you and in you, and you end up becoming a new creature. But don't be discouraged if you find that you're struggling and falling, that a lot of people in their walk with the Lord spend time going through that. Well, you know, Pastor Doug, I like the illustration. I think you might have mentioned this in the sermon that you preached a few weeks ago about which nature are we feeding? Are we feeding the carnal nature or are we feeding the spiritual nature? And by spending time in God's word, spending time in prayer, spending time in Christian gatherings and association, we're strengthening that spiritual nature. But if we're just feeding on the things of the world, that's going to strength, strengthen our carnal nature that when temptation does come, we can't resist it the way we should. That's right. So uh, we can do some preparation uh, even before those temptations come. We do have a book. It's called Tips for Resisting Temptation. We'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. It deals with the subject. The number to call is 800-835-6747. And again, just call and ask for the book. It's called Tips for Resisting Temptation. 
Thanks for your call, Lisa. Let's see. We've got uh, Timothy listening from Montana. Timothy, welcome to the program. Evening to you both. How are you both doing? Doing well. Thank you for calling. Good. Um, my question is on Acts 1, verse 26. Okay, we're going there now. And what, do you want me to read that for everyone? Yeah. Okay. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So what's your question about that? Yeah, so this is after Jesus ascended, and they're talking about replacing Judas. And in my understanding of reading the Bible, um, casting lots is something pagans do, not God's children. So can you explain why they did this? Yeah, well, there are several times in the Bible where they did cast lots and even at the instruction of the Lord. Now, it can be sometimes a lack of faith of people say, I'm going to flip a coin or you ought to pray and use good judgment. But when they divided the promised land, God told Joshua to cast lots to see who would get. To, so everyone knew that, you know, that God was not being arbitrary. It was being fairly determined. Um, and uh, when Gideon uh I'm, I'm sorry, when um, the apostles were picking, uh, Gideon didn't cast lots, he did kind of throw a fleece out. That's a little different, similar principle. <laughs> but um, and when the apostles cast lots, they were basically saying, you know, Lord, we know we're down to 11 apostles. You specifically wanted 12, not 13. And it's interesting that as soon as they get 12 apostles, the Holy Spirit's poured out. Um, you go to Revelation and you end up with 12 times 12,000 and when God gets this 144,000, there's a great spiritual revival. So the, the number 12 was important, just like there were 12 tribes in the Old Testament. There were 12 judges, 12 princes of Israel. Uh, 12 is a number that represents the leadership of the church. So I think God wanted them to do this. You never hear from Matthias again in the Bible. I mean, other than some you know Christian tradition, he's not mentioned in the Bible again. But... Um, it almost seems like a couple chapters later, God picks Paul mm -hmm. to do a special work. You know, Pastor, I think one of the reasons we do find lots being cast at God's instruction in the Bible isn't so much because, you know, the prophet doesn't know God's will, but perhaps it's to help clarify for all of those who are looking on that this has been done fairly without personal bias. For example, if you had Paul get up, or Peter, I should say, in the upper room and say, I think we need this person. Others might say, well, that's because you're his good friend. How do, you know that's, yeah, <laughs> how do you know that's God's <laughs> will? But when you cast lots, it at least removes that, that any, uh, you know, that there's no prejudice or bias being involved. In, and that's maybe why. Although, you know, practically speaking today, you know, we probably need to be careful in making important decisions by just throwing dice and hoping for the best. I mean, God has given us counsel in his word. We can seek godly counsel from others. Um, and pray that God would you know, guide us in the way he'd want us to go. He leads through providence, too. Yeah. I have a, a book that will send you a free copy, if you'd like, and it's called How Do You Determine the Will of God? And it gives you principles, and, and casting lots is not one of them, but it gives you principles on how do you know, mm -hmm. what, you know God's will biblically. The number to call for that is 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book. It's called Determining the Will of God, and we'll be happy to send that to anyone in North America. Again, that's 800-835-6747. And if Emmanuel would like that book, and he's in Ghana, Africa, well, I'm sorry, we can't send you the hard copy, but you can go to the Amazing Facts website. Just go to amazingfacts.com or .org. And we have a free library, and you can actually type the name of the book, and you can read it for free right there online. 
You're listening to Bible Answers Live. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. Call us at 1-800-GOD-SAYS. Next caller that we have is, uh, let's see, we've got uh, Charlene listening from California. Charlene, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, Pastors, I heard another pastor talking about Eden being here on earth, and I know the cherubim was at the gate, but how long was Eden here before it was taken away? Well, you know, the Bible does not specifically tell us when Eden was caught up to heaven. It's generally believed among most Christians that because the New Jerusalem and the Tree of Life are in heaven, that since God planted the Garden of Eden, he didn't want it destroyed during the flood, that just before the flood, he caught it up to heaven. He plucked it up, you might say, just like you got the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven in Revelation 21. So God can move real estate. He brought the Garden of Eden up because the Tree of Life is in the New Jerusalem. It's sort of the central park of the New Jerusalem. And uh, so I believe the Garden of Eden is in the in the city and uh, probably the time period he took it up, we know that it wasn't right when Adam and Eve sinned because he left it there and just guarded the way to the tree of life with cherubim. Probably before the flood, he mm-hmm. took it up. We have a verse in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. It says, to him who hears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. It's not of a tree of life, but it's of the tree of life. So there's one tree of life that was the tree in the Garden of Eden, but as Pastor Doug mentioned, it appears as though that was taken to heaven sometime before before the flood. And you know, if you think about the flood, the purpose of the flood was to purify the earth from sin. Adam and Eve were cast out or sent out of the Garden of Eden. So the Garden of Eden was still pure. And so there was no need for that to be destroyed. And it says right there in that verse, in the midst of the paradise. Paradise is another word used to describe the Garden of Eden. That's right. All right, I hope that helps. Thanks for your call, Charlene. We've got uh, Lily listening from Canada. Lily, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Yes, and your question. Um, so my question is, if when we come to Christ and give our lives to Christ, um, our sins are forgiven, so why do we need to ask for forgiveness and repent anytime after that? Well, the Bible talks, and Pastor Ross might have to look up the verse, but it talks in one place about our past sins are forgiven. In other words, when you accept Jesus, you're coming to him with your past record of sin and you repent of your sins and he forgives your sins and you begin to walk in a newness of life. But then it tells us in 1 John chapter 1, if we sin, he's speaking to Christians, if we sin after that, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But it tells us if we repent and confess of our sins in Proverbs. So when David sinned with Bathsheba, he didn't shrug and say, well, you know, I repented back when I was 13. I don't need to do it again. When he sinned with Bathsheba, he repented again. So we need to keep short accounts with God. If, if we commit some you know, known sin and the Holy Spirit brings that to our attention, we don't, we're not telling God because God doesn't know. By confessing and repenting our sins, we're basically going on record that by God's grace, we want to be different. We're acknowledging it's wrong. We're apologizing for specifics and asking him to uh, forgive us. You know, the verse you're referring to there is Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that says, When God set forth as a propitiation, speaking of Christ through his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. 
So when we confess our sins, we're forgiven. But I think it has to do with attitude. If our attitude is, well, I confess that sin way back when, and um, you know, I'm just going to keep living my life, and if I sin, oh well, too bad. You wonder about the attitude of the person. I, if we realize what our sins cost God and the suffering that it brought on Jesus, you know, we should feel uh, remorse when we sin, and we would go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, please forgive me. Help me not to do that again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whenever we do that, it, it basically uh, opens the way for uh, healing our relationship with God. Absolutely. And, you know, it's that way in our relationships with each other. If I sin against a brother or sister and I offend them, I, I you know, it's always appropriate to go to them and say, I'm sorry about this or that, and, and you can heal the relationship. You can't say to your wife, Pastor Doug, well, you know, I asked for forgiveness, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> they won't put up with that. <laughs> it's got to be a day-by-day experience. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says, I die daily. And that's a good example to follow. Phil is listening from Arizona. Phil, welcome to the program. Hello, Pastor Bachelor and uh, Ross. This is my first time calling, so I want to thank you. Um, I want one quick question. I will say thank you for, um, I heard a past message, you clarified my view of God. I used to be angry with God because of hell, but my question is, today's church leaders that we see at the forefront, they seem to be inconsistent with Christ and seems having a hard time, you know, with all the information and all the churches out there trying to figure out, you know, what is the true representation of God? I, I, you know, I religiously follow your sites and you made the Bible so clear for me and a lot of things I struggle with I have no, I, you know, there's complete clarity, uh, you know, makes total sense, you know, just from a logistical standpoint. So my question is, you know, trying to follow, you know, who are, who are put before us as leaders, um, it just seems like there's so much inconsistency of what's being said and what's actually taught by Christ. That's my statement and question. Yeah. Well, you know, th- this is not a new problem, uh, even in Christ's day. When, when Jesus was preaching, the people were confused. They said, if he's the Messiah, then how come most of the religious leaders don't get it? They don't agree with that. Well, we better follow them. And, you know, Moses said, don't follow a multitude to do evil. It's often been true through history that uh, apostasy comes into the church and it is the minority that get it right. Martin Luther, be, through being a personal Bible student, he had to stand up against the majority of his um, associate priests, as did John Calvin, and as did uh, Wycliffe, and so many of the great reformers. They were Catholic priests, and then they said, you know, we're drifting too far from the Bible. And as soon as they spoke up about what the Bible really said, well, they were pariahs in their generation. So that's happened so many times, and it's still true today that, you know, Typical evangelical Christianity is a laughing stock for a lot of the world. Uh, they see these evangelists begging for money, promising free pickup trucks, and and um, you know wearing their their gilded clothing and <laughs> and, and saying, yeah, send me your last twenty dollars." And then they laugh at uh, they laugh at a lot of the hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Don't follow the crowd. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the Bible does give us some some good practical steps in in seeking good godly leaders and and joining and being a part of of the body of Christ or the church. And we do have a study guide that's called the Bride of Christ, and it actually gives you these various Bible principles. And as Pastor Doug said, the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark if we follow those 
biblical principles, we will be led into a clear understanding. And, you know, Pastor Doug, even though you might have a church that, you know, believes the Bible and is truthful, we still need to recognize that the church is made up of people, and we are never to follow just individuals or people blindly. Um, even good people make mistakes. We need to follow Christ and follow his words. So that, that needs to be our guide. If you'd like to receive that study guide, it's called The Bride of Christ. We'll be happy to send that to anyone who calls and asks. The number is 800-835-6747. We'll get it in the mail. And I think you'll be blessed by reading that. We have Ali listening in New York. Ali, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you guys so much for answering my call. Thank you. Get real close to your phone because your voice is a little faint. Uh, okay, sorry, sorry. Um, appreciate it. I thought... I wasn't going to be able to get picked up uh, from everyone calling. But um, my question is in Luke 17, um, verse 5 through 6. Okay. Go in there now. Okay. And, yeah, got it. Okay. So you, you want to read it? I can. It says, and the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you've got faith as a mustard seed, you can say to the mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So for me, my question is, I know that, and we know that, uh, faith is the essence of pleasing God in Jesus, because it says it's impossible to please God in Jesus without faith. So is little, my question is, is little faith enough? Um, How do we strengthen our faith, and how can we relinquish any doubt? Well, the devil's always going to try to bring in doubt. You may have battles where the devil's going to try and get you to doubt. The devil did that to Jesus. Um, usually faith is built upon evidence that God has given us. Most people don't have total blind faith for out, without a reason. Uh, even when David went to fight Goliath, he told King Saul, I believe I can kill that giant. He had faith he could kill the giant. He said, because God helped me kill a lion, and then again, God helped me kill the bear. I think that same God can help me kill the giant. And, you know, when we see God answer little prayers, our strength our faith strengthens that he can answer the bigger prayers. When we test his word and see that God always is faithful to keep his word and the Bible is true, our faith becomes stronger and stronger in the word. So through the study of the word, through prayer, through experiencing God's leading, our faith grows. You know, I'm looking at the verse passage, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We both have heard stories of people who approach the Bible with a very critical attitude who thought, well, there's no God and the Bible's just a fairy tale. But they actually started reading the Bible and as they began to read the Word, their faith was increased until they made a commitment and a full surrender to Christ. Uh, you found a Bible in a cave when you weren't really believing that the Bible was true and it made a difference in your life. So if you want to increase your faith, uh, a good place to start is spend time in the Word. And study the Bible. Don't just read the Bible, but study the Bible. And, of course, find a good resource that can help you do that. And I'm thinking, yeah, amazing facts. Go to the website. We have a free uh, online Bible school that will help guide people. And by the time you get through that Bible school, your faith will be strengthened as you see the promises and prophecies of God's Word. Yeah, and if you simply go to either a Bible universe and you can sign up for a Bible study course there, Go to the Amazing Facts website. You'll see the free uh, Bible studies that we have. But uh, this whole ministry exists to help uh, get people involved in the Word. If you've ever looked at the Amazing Facts logo, you'll see it is an open Bible. We're trying to get people to read the Bible. That's where the transformational power is. Well, friends, we just want to take the last few moments of the program to um, uh, 
remind you that Amazing Facts is entirely supported by people like you who are listening. If you're hearing this on the radio, it generally means someone in your neighborhood is helping to pay to put this program on. And that's the only way we stay on. If you'd like to uh, keep us on the air, and I know there's thousands of good ministries out there, and you probably hear this announcement many, many times, we are kept on the air by you. And so we appreciate anything you can do. Just go to the Amazing Facts website. Uh, you'll find a place there. You click and donate. And uh, we trust you'll have treasure in heaven. Thank you so much for studying with us. God willing, we'll be again together next week. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. Do you feel as though your world is spiraling out of control? Or perhaps new life challenges are frightening you more than they should? Are you sinking while you're thinking? Excessive worry can consume you, eating you from the inside out, resulting in sickness, insomnia, and paralyzing fear. It can also damage relationships, ruin opportunities, and yes, diminish your witness for the gospel. Worry affects everybody differently, but it's all driven by fear. So how can you overcome a world full of reasons to be anxious? I'd like to recommend for you my new book, Finding Peace in a World of Worry. You'll discover a lifeline to victory, a place where you can cast your cares upon Christ and experience a serenity that isn't subject to your circumstances. Get your copy of Pastor Doug's Finding Peace in a World of Worry today. Call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Deep within the pages of the Bible, stories of great heroes, heroes of great deeds, great love, and great sacrifice. But behind them is another hero, hidden in plain sight amid the shadows. He was there from the beginning, and he'll be there until the end. Discover the golden thread of a Savior woven throughout the entire Bible tapestry. Shadows of Light. Seeing Jesus in all the Bible. Get your copy today by calling 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. If you'd like to enhance your study of God's Word, visit our website at www.amazingfacts.org and sign up for our free Bible study course. And make sure to check out our online bookstore at afbookstore.com, which offers thousands of inspiring books, DVDs, and more to help you get the most out of God's Word. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Did you enjoy this program? Make sure to tell your family and friends. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.